0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, and we will pick up in the next section of Matthew 26 that we left off with last week. If you're using an ESV Bible, there's a good chance that Matthew 26 can be found, at least the section we'll be looking. At, on page 833, there are three images that have guided my prayers and hopes for today's message. I want to share them with you. Three images, metaphors to illustrate my hope and prayer for this specific sermon. Image number one, have you ever been in a thunderstorm in the summer? The summer clouds have lightning flashing all around, but the lightning never comes crashing down and and hit the ground. Just the, the, the picture of a thunderstorm in the summer. It's the image number one of lightning all around in the sky, but you're safe, it's distant, and it's not hitting close to home. Image number two is from Jonathan Edwards, a a, a pastor in the New England area a long time ago, a couple hundred years ago. He, He wrote a book where he was talking about the difference between honey as being described like scientifically, what color it is, its texture. You could study it like crazy and find out everything you could know about honey. But really, honey is something that you need to taste. So it's the difference between honey that is felt, honey that is smelled, honey that is touched, versus honey that touches the tongue. Lightning flashing up in the sky versus lightning hitting close to home. Honey that is touched Somewhat understood versus honey that is sweet. The third image is you've got a bomb. TNT, some kind of explosive device. It's there. It's right next to you. It's on you. It's in your house. But it's, it's never been detonated. In all three of these pictures and images, I'm thinking about God's Word, the character of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God. And for many people, I feel, especially the more comfortable that they get around church and the Bible, it becomes one of those experiences that happens regularly for a pastor to hear someone and say, I'm reading the Bible, but it's like a thunderstorm in the sky in the summer. It's not striking right next to me. Yeah, I see the bomb, but it's not detonated. It's not exploded. I don't know this joy and hope and this transformation. I feel flat, empty. It feels like I'm touching the honey. I'm all around it. I'm being bathed in it, but it's not sweet to me. My prayer, my hope, is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, The lightning will strike your heart, the honey will touch your tongue, and the bomb will explode. I can't do that. If you're looking for a teaching, then all you're going to get is honey to touch. But if you're looking for God to show up, then you desperately need the Spirit. Apart from Him, we can do none of these things. This will just be another go-through-the-motions kind of sermon. And I want week after week for explosions to happen, for transformation. I still believe that. Otherwise, I'm quitting. Next week, I quit if I don't believe that's what we're doing here. And I mean that in all sincerity. So, I want to pray just as an act of humility and an act of of us as a unified whole say, before we even read this passage, let's submit ourselves to the Spirit of God and ask for his blessing. Father, in the name of Jesus, to his glory and praise, we pray for the Spirit of God to come and pierce our hearts. For those of us who are feeling quite comfortable, I pray we would feel afflicted. And for those who are feeling afflicted, I pray that we will be comforted. Whatever it is, blow up our minds and our hearts and our imaginations with worship today. To the glory of your name, amen. Let's read God's word together in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, sorry, we're at the next passage, starting in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? One big idea. Jesus is the judge who was judged unjustly Jesus is the judge who is judged unjustly so that dynamite would explode in your heart so that lightning would strike down right next to the very seat you are sitting on so that you would taste the sweetness of honey Jesus is the judge who is unjustly judged Let's take that sentence and work through it so you can see the thing that we're talking about, the bomb. Let's examine the honey. Let's look up at the sky and let's pray that throughout examination of Jesus as judge, who was unjustly judged, we will conclude this message by us having these effects upon our heart. First, Jesus is the judge. This is explained extremely clear I think in the exchange between the high priest if you look at verse 63 but Jesus remaining silent the high priest then is tired of the silence and then he demands by oath I adjure you by the living God tell us if you are the Christ Christos is the Greek word it is not a last name sometimes that's one of those kind of popular misunderstandings It is not Jesus, Mr. Christ. It is the Greek word for the anointed one, or as we might say, Messiah. The anointed one would have been, in their understanding, a human, an earthly ruler. That's what they're they're looking for. That's what the guy asking the question, Caiaphas the high priest, is saying when he says, are you this human ruler that was anointed and promised by God. Jesus' answer tells us that he is a judge. He says, you have said it. And what he's really saying in paraphrase is, yes, I am. If you read Mark's account, he's saying, yes. But also, he's saying more than that. He's saying, yes, but I don't mean what you mean when you say Christ, I mean something more, which is why he says, but let me tell you. So I think what we need to understand is Jesus saying, I don't disagree with the idea that, yes, I am the Christ, but I am more than that. I am the judge over the entire universe. From now on, you all, plural you, you all, not just you, Caiaphas, everyone is going to see and understand. From now on, the tables are going to be turned. You're judging me but I will be your judge, the one who is the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. If you missed last week's message, you would have heard me say that the New Testament authors, Matthew, and Jesus himself like to use the Old Testament to explain themselves. And in this case, we have another example of this. Jesus not only explains himself by quoting an Old Testament passage, Psalm 110, but he also mixes together Daniel chapter seven. And when you study both of those passages, Jesus is saying, I am the Christ, but I'm not just a human ruler. I am a heavenly ruler. I am the judge of the universe. I am the Psalm 110 Lord, and I am the son of man who is coming on the clouds of heaven. Just by way of reminder, Psalm 110, verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand what Jesus is referring to. Until I make your enemies your footstool. You read the rest of the psalm in verse 6. This man who sits at the right hand will be the one who judges the nations. That's Psalm 110. The right hand of power is the judge. Or if you read Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9, I looked and there were thrones, two thrones, one throne and then another throne. An ancient of days, a very old eternal being took his seat on one of the thrones and his clothing was as white as snow and his hair was head filled with pure wool and it was a fiery flame of throne with wheels burning with fire and a stream of fire issued out from it and before it and thousands upon thousands were serving the one on the throne and 10,000 times 10,000 were before him and then this is the phrase in Daniel chapter 7 that the one on the throne is the one that has the courts opened up with judgment and the books were opened. It's a courtroom scene. Throne, kingly ruler, judge, with the books opened up, and he is the one that is judging and everyone else is serving and worshiping. King, judge, ruler. And then in verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7, it says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, the same phrase that Jesus uses, There came one like a son of man, that's how he designated himself, the son of man, the right hand of power with the clouds of heaven. This son of man in Daniel chapter 7 comes to the ancient of days, so that's the one throne, and then he was presented before him, and then the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that is over all peoples, nations, and languages, that they should serve him, that this dominion that he has is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. What am I saying? Jesus quotes two passages of scripture from the old testament psalm 110 daniel 7 mashes them together and what is he saying he's saying i'm the king ruler judge over the universe you will see you're judging me soon i'll be judging you do you think the people that were listening to jesus when he said this understood what he was saying Like, was this cryptic? Was this one of those things like an obscure Old Testament verse that nobody really knew about? And they're like, huh, scratching their heads. Did they put two and two together? Well, read the response. What does Matthew say happened? After Jesus says this, the high priest tore his robes, something that he is never allowed to do, except for one instance. When there's an act of blasphemy, blasphemy, if you're not familiar with that word, is a word that says that you are improperly using either the name of God or you are calling yourself God when most people aren't God, so therefore that's blasphemous, or you are misusing or misnaming Something that's associated with God. So it could be the temple or it could be his word and all of that would fit under the category of blasphemy. So he tears his robes. He says, this is blasphemy. Then he turns to all the people, which includes this council of other Jewish leaders, and he says, we don't need any further witnesses, do we? Then he asks this, what then is your judgment, everyone? Public, This is not private. This is multiple witnesses. They're all hearing Jesus say this. What do you all think? And they answer death. He deserves death. So you can tell by their response. The claims of the Bible, the truths about Jesus, like the one that's being made here, is a hard claim, it is not a soft claim. People like to treat Jesus like a good moral teacher. And when he's just a good moral teacher, he's just lightning in the clouds. It doesn't strike down if he's just another teacher. But when he claims that he is the judge of the universe, then you cannot respond to him with indifference. This is an appropriate kind of response because you are either all in for him or you are against him. And they are against him. There is no option like so many people want to say today. Well, that's good for you. You know, I'm just glad that that's Christian thing working for you. I'm glad that you're into Jesus. I'm not. That sort of response shows just how ignorant people are about Jesus. Anytime someone responds that way, it is them not understanding the hard claim that Jesus is the judge of the universe. So, what about you? Do you understand that Jesus is judge? Well, we'll know by your response. We'll know whether or not you get angry at this sermon or you love it. Any other response is not acceptable. You have misunderstood me and the Bible altogether. Either anger because I have so offended you or worship because this is ultimate reality and truth. As C.S. Lewis has rightly said in his book, Mere Christianity, this is a a well-known, famous quote from a, a British author earlier in the 20th century. In his book, Mere Christianity, he said, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the very foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as this great teacher, but I can't accept the claim that he is God. That is one thing that we must never say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Either he would be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the very devil of hell. You need to make a choice. Either this man was and is the very son of God or else he is a madman or he is something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, However, strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and he is God. Nobody who rightly understands the message of the Bible will respond to Jesus with indifference. You either respond like these people did, he should die. This is utter blasphemy. He's claiming equal authority and ruling with God himself. He's saying he's the son of man of Daniel 7. He's saying he's the Lord of David in Psalm 110. What? If you don't get what Jesus just said, then you just don't get it yet. And Jesus in Christianity is just going to remain in the clouds. It's going to be honey a touch. And think, I'm kind of close. I think I'm a Christian. But until the judge of the universe strikes And you understand, whoa, Jesus is my judge. There will be no saving faith. Hard news of the gospel is like a giant meteor is headed toward the city of Chicago and it will blow up the entire city of downtown. It will blow up all of the suburbs and you need to get away for hundreds of miles. That's called hard news. If that's the news headline today, you either say, no, that's fake news, or you think it's real news and you respond. You respond with, I need to get away, hundreds of miles. I'm seeing the satellite footage. There is a giant meteor. It's headed towards Chicago. We need to run. You don't just say, huh, interesting. Interesting. Now, if on the news it says a new restaurant is opening up in Palatine, you might think, huh, yeah, I'm not into that. That's soft news. Most news today is soft news anyway. Hard news, the news of the gospel, today's message from the Bible, Jesus is the judge. He's your judge. And the greatest problem that we have is not just our sin, it's the judge who judges our sin. Your greatest problem is God. That you're guilty of sin. And sin, in a nutshell, is that when we decide to substitute ourselves for God and put ourselves on his throne and decide we know what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. When we decide we want to be the judge, sin is being judgmental. Something that all of us are. And we're going to be judged by the ultimate judge, Jesus. And this is, this is not good news. This part of the sermon should not make you happy. It's true and it's devastating. Jesus is the judge. The good news is that he is the judge who was judged unjustly. That's the second part. Jesus is the judge who was unjustly judged. If sin is us substituting ourselves in God's place, then the good news of salvation is that God has substituted himself in our place. And this is exactly the story of the cross and the trial right before it. The God of the universe, the judge of the living and the dead, The son of man who has the claim to the right hand of God with all power and authority coming on the clouds of heaven. That judge was unjustly judged by humans. Sinful humans. Trials during this time and day, as far as we can study its Jewish history, were supposed to be held during the daytime. Matthew chapter 26 takes place In the middle of the night trials and court cases had to be in one of three specified courtrooms read verse 57 then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end where are they they're at Caiaphas' house. That is not one of the three places that court cases could be had. It's the wrong time of day, it is the wrong location. The court cases, according to the Jewish custom, would have been to have the defense make their case first. But who is making their case first in Matthew chapter 26? The false witnesses. They must not reach a conviction on the same day as the trial, but as you can tell by the end of our paragraph, what is your judgment, everyone? Death. And they come to a conclusion right then and there. And if this was not enough, it is illegal to hold any kind of trial or case according to the Jewish kind of customs and laws of the day when it is during a festival, or on the eve of a festival, or during a Sabbath, or on the eve of a Sabbath. And it is the eve of Passover. This is like Christmas Eve in the middle of the night, turning into Christmas morning. That's when it's happening, that's where it's happening, that's how it's happening, and every detail that you could imagine when you put up, here's the customs, here's what they're doing, it's unjust. Matthew 26, verses 59 to 61. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. What more do you need? Like, you don't even need to study the history surrounding the event, just read the Bible. Verse 59, they were seeking false testimony. They weren't seeking true testimony, they were seeking false testimony. They couldn't care what it was. They just needed two witnesses that agreed with each other and they were having a really hard time getting those. Verse 60, they found no one. Many false witnesses came forward. They tried, and they tried, and they tried, and Jesus is just sitting there saying nothing. And then two came forward, and two finally agreed and said that we've heard this man say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And according to our records of what Jesus said and didn't say, this is kind of true and this is kind of not true. Jesus did say that the temple would be destroyed, but he did not say that he would destroy it. And even in that context, he was talking about his own body, John chapter 2 says. And all the while, Jesus says nothing, remains silent until eventually the high priest has enough and he demands, I adjure you in the name of God, speak! And Jesus spoke up and he dropped a bomb a giant bomb of truth before them. They had no evidence. They had no witnesses. They had the wrong place, the wrong time of day, the wrong time of year, and they went about the proceedings in the wrong order. And Jesus says, not just a, wow, that's an outlandish statement. He gives them the one piece of evidence that they were needing, and they had nothing prior to that. Once Jesus speaks up, the whole court case turns. What does this mean? It means he's in control. He is not having his life taken from him. He is laying down his life as he submits to the will of the Father. I hope that you're starting to realize that this passage of Scripture is amazing. It's breathtaking. Jesus is the judge of the universe who is unjustly, in every way you look at it, being judged. And this is so that you and I would be transformed, become new people, have your hearts explode with worship, so that three things, actually it might only be two, but here's your application points, and they all come from 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians, even though in one sense it seems like, what are we doing? I thought we're studying Matthew. Matthew but Paul says some things about judgment and judging that I think are incredibly helpful to help push the detonator button, to just pour the honey into your mouth. First, Jesus is the judge who was unjustly judged so that first we would rightly judge ourselves. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Matthew 26 exists in part so that you and I would rightly judge ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 starting in verse 3. Listen to these words of Paul. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Phil's summary, quick paraphrase. Paul says, I don't care what you think. It's a small thing to me. No big deal. Water down my back that I'm being judged by you or any other human court. I don't care what you think. As far as I'm aware, I don't think there's anything that I've done that was wrong. I'm not guilty. My conscience is clear. And people say this kind of thing all the time, don't they? I don't care what other people think. But they don't say what he says. He says, "I not only care what you think or other human courts think, I don't even care what I think." I mean, this is amazing. This is something has changed this person. It's one thing to say I don't care what anybody else thinks. Lots of people say that. But then what do they normally say right after that? Think of like every single interview with every famous person, especially athletes. Well, there's a lot of haters out there, all kinds of people. Haters going to hate, and you just can't be distracted by the noise. You just got to keep pressing on, and you got to do what? Believe in yourself. I don't care what you think about me. I believe in me. We believed in ourselves, and that's why we won the Super Bowl. We believed when no one else believed. How often do you hear that stuff? Maybe you don't watch sports, but it's like every week in sports. Nobody says what Paul says, though. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what others think about me. I don't even care what I think about me. I don't think I did anything wrong, but that doesn't mean I didn't do anything wrong. You know who I care about? I care about the Lord and what he thinks about me. Jesus is the judge, and that exploded in Paul's heart in such a way where he does not have the fear of man and he does not have the fear of the courts and he does not have the fear of even his own internal thoughts about himself if the gospel is going to explode in your heart then start right here stop being the judge of yourself Stop beating yourself up day after day. Well, I'm just not pretty. I don't look the way that I should. I'm not smart enough. I'm not as successful. I'm not as productive as I should have been today. I'm not as morally good as the other people that I think are better than me. What are you doing when you think that way and talk that way other than putting yourself on the throne and judging yourself? It's self-judgment. The only person who has the right to beat you up is the lord and guess what he didn't do it john 3:17 says for god did not send his son into the world to condemn it but in order that the world would be saved through him in other words jesus came first not to bring the judgment but to bear the judgment jesus the judge on the throne with the father left the throne In order to be unjustly judged, so that you and I would rightly judge ourselves in the eyes of the way God sees us in Christ. How many of us would have our lives and our attitudes and our perspectives, our reviewed thoughts of last week, our upcoming hopes of the next week transformed like dynamite? explosions if we believed by faith that Jesus is our judge. And he was unjustly judged so that we could no longer be the total judge of ourselves. Secondly, Jesus was unjustly judged so that we would rightly judge one another. If you turn the Bible over one more page or look over in the next column, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul doesn't say, I don't judge myself and I don't care what you all think because we should never do any judgments whatsoever. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not lest ye thee be judged. So judge, judging anybody at any time whatsoever is off the table. Paul apparently doesn't think that's what Jesus taught. Not that he didn't say those words, but they must not have meant that there's no judgments whatsoever. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. For the context, read verses 1 and 2. A kind of immoral action that the rest of the world would say, that's disgusting. We don't tolerate that kind of behavior, but people in the church are tolerating it like it's no big deal. I've pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. This is gross. So verse 4. When you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. You're to judge him. That's gross. The rest of the world's judged him. You and the church should too. Why? So that his spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord. If someone calls themselves a Christian, that's the context, but they're not bowing before Christ as their judge, they need to be confronted. Why? Because we love them because they're being deceived and we want them to be saved instead of deceived the church is a place where we do judge one another but not by our own standards not because I look down at you and say well that's not the right way to do it because that's not how I grew up doing it but because we have agreed upon together that we put ourselves under the lordship of Jesus as our judge and our master and our king and we're all just trying to obey him and when you say yeah that's what I'm doing but then you don't do it We're going to call you out in love with gentleness, of course. I mean, that's at least the hope. We judge one another according to the standard of God's word. One another. Christians should not be marked by their judgmentalism of like always telling everybody, well, that's not biblical. Look at the rest of the chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm writing you to not associate with a brother like this one who names the name of brother, but then is guilty of sexual immorality or it could be something different. It could be greed or idolatry or reviling or drunkenness or swindling. Don't even eat with such a person. For what do we have to do with judging outsiders, those outside the church? Is it not our job to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside the church. You purge the evil person from among you. Jesus Christ is our judge. God will take care of everybody outside of the church. And if we can rightly understand this teaching and understanding of judgment and church discipline, and hopefully we will be able to embrace the gospel and not just say, well, we can't judge one another. and We're just going to let sin go unchecked and not really care. Jesus will judge those outside the church, but those inside the church should remove anybody, and this is the key context, bearing the name. Read it carefully in the verse. In verse 11, they bear the name of a brother or sister, and they're guilty of a sin that defines their very existence. That's just who they are. don't just struggle with greed. They're greedy people, unrepentant, continually sinning. And that's not the only case. You keep reading in chapter 6, look at the next passage. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I'm saying this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you that is wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers." In summary, Paul's saying we should keep our disagreements and our disputes within the church. We should not take them to outside secular courts. We have God's word and God's law and God's spirit. So going and suing one another inside of the church is a defeat. That's a loss for the kingdom. That's showing that our God is not good. His, his gospel doesn't really transform. His laws aren't really that great. We need outside support from the government. He's saying, no, that would be terrible. You don't need anything else. You have all that you need in order to live life and godliness with God's word, God's people, and God's spirit. Don't you realize that in the kingdom of God, you have people that will one day be judges of everything, including angels? How can you not deal with little squabbles amongst trivial affairs day to day? So don't sue each other. It would be better to just suffer the wrong. And this is the part where I wanted to really think about our passage and the detonator blowing up in your heart. How many of you get in disputes with your spouse, with your family members, with your neighbor, with any kind of person, especially people within the church, because that's the context we're talking about in this passage. And how many times does it come up in your mind, you know, what they just said was completely false and inaccurate. It was not a great representation of what I said. And they have really misunderstood this whole thing. And so I'm going to remain perfectly silent and patient and loving. Like, is is that what we do? But Paul's saying it would be better, instead of making the fight go on and escalating it and taking outside the church, just just be wronged. Where do you get that idea from? Where do you get the idea that it would be better to be defrauded I think he got it from Matthew 26. Jesus is standing before judges, being unjustly judged, and he's saying nothing. And the only thing that he does says cements the case of his execution. That is your master. Is that what your next fight's gonna look like? Is the Spirit going to stir up and explode within you a sort of melting of the heart, a lightning strike that says, if that's what He did for me, then what's the point? Why not? Ask yourself that question the next time you're in the heat of the moment. Why not? Why not just be wronged? Who cares? Jesus dealt with false accusations and unjust judges not to stand up for what was right, but to make you and I right before God so that we could stand before the judge. He did that for you so that we would judge ourselves rightly, so we would judge one another rightly. One more passage right here in 1 Corinthians. Right where we left off, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We do not judge ourselves or others in the church as those who are morally superior. We judge ourselves and we judge others on the basis of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. That's the kind of people we were. We know. We know all too well. We have no chance to stand before the God of the universe. We have no rights to the kingdom of God. We are outsiders looking in except for the fact that in verse 11, he says, washing and sanctifying, and key word here, justifying happens in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the kind of people he says, very importantly, you were, you were those kind of people. Something happened. Honey came from this yellowy, textury, smelly thing to this taste and see that the Lord is good. It went from being a lightning strike in the sky to a lightning strike in my heart. We're new people like it affected us. The gospel did something to us. When Jesus Christ dies in our place unjustly, he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I would become the righteousness of God. Justified means to be declared not guilty, judged no more by God. Sins forgiven, all debts paid, Washed by the Spirit of God. If sin is substituting ourself in the place of God, salvation is Jesus Christ substituting in our place. God taking our spot. He identified himself with us, leaving the throne room of God so that we could inherit the kingdom. Being wrongly accused and unjustly persecuted so that you and I could be declared not guilty. What's the secret then to not being a judgmental Christian and condemning everyone around you, but still at the same time not being a pushover and actually standing for truth? How can we be grace and truth kind of people, both individually and corporately as a church? It's when you understand the gospel, that Jesus is the judge. He did not come to bring judgment at first, but to bear it in our place, die on a cross, and every single moment leading up to that cross is all part of the Father's plan and the Son's willing submission because of His great love and mercy. He loved you that much, for God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And therefore, you and I don't need to try and pretend or act like we are something better than even the very scum of the earth, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. But at the very same moment, we know that our status and our position and our person is new in Jesus Christ. Washed, sanctified, justified. Can you hold both of those? Can you hold both of those realities? That the bad news of the gospel is far worse than you have ever realized. And that you have no ability to stand before the judge. You're nothing. Man, that's a depressing Message, But can you also hold the most life-giving, most uplifting, exalting truth that you are far greater loved than you ever dreamed and every other love that you're longing for on Valentine's Day has been exploded by the love of God in Jesus Christ? Can you hold both of those? If you can, then you know how sweet the honey is. And the power of the lightning striking right in your heart. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you that you have given us Christ. And that we know who he is from Matthew 26. And we know how to apply this truth because of 1 Corinthians 4-6. to We thank you for your word and that your spirit washes us and transforms us. And I pray that in some way your spirit will use this word and keep gnawing at us and showing us various ways to apply this reality to our lives, that we will not be enslaved by the fears of men and women around us. Oh God, I pray that you would lift the veil for many of us of how many decisions we make every day that are not on the basis of Jesus being our judge but us being our own judge or our friends or our family members or our neighbors or our co-workers. How enslaved we are to their judgments and what they think about us. So I pray that you would set us free, wash us, sanctify us, remind us There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We have been justified, not guilty. What a glorious and amazing truth for us to meditate on today. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. In um, the history of the church, there have been a few different examples of Christians summarizing the beliefs about Jesus and one of those is the Apostles Creed and as we take the Lord's faith uh, the Lord's Supper now I'd encourage you to open up those elements if you're a Christian and you have experienced the explosive power of a new affection in Jesus Christ then you should participate if you're here today and you're like you know I just got to admit I don't think I've ever had any powerful explosion in my heart. I've learned things about God, I've heard things about Jesus, but it has not touched down right next to me and transformed my loves and my affections. If that's you, I think you should just listen, pray, plead that God would save you and do that kind of work in your heart. For the rest of us, let's affirm our faith that Jesus is the judge with these words from the Apostles' Creed talking about Jesus. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell on the third day. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. He died, he rose again. He sits at the right hand of God until he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe that? Has it changed and transformed you? First Corinthians chapter 11 says that the Lord Jesus gave us a meal on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. And then he said these words, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat.